Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Brian Kremens, the author of Captain Marvel and the Art of Nostalgia. Hi, Brian. Hi, good morning or good night, for I guess, for you. I'm hoping we can start by having you just talk a little bit about how you got interested in this topic, how you started to write about Captain Marvel um, and comics and, and what brought you to writing this book? Oh, sure. Um, well, I, I've been writing for comics or about comics for quite a while. I did my first, uh, you know, my first publication when I was still in grad school was for the uh, John Lentz International Journal of Comic Art. Uh, so back in um, you know, the early 2000s, uh, you know, John had been publishing that journal for like a couple of years. And you know, I decided to write a, a piece about uh, Modoc from, if you know, from Captain America, um, who I, I think Patton Oswalt is playing in the cartoon version that's supposed to be coming out soon, which is like perfect casting, right? Um, and so I, I, you know, I got started writing on comics uh, fairly early. My, my PhD is, you know, specifically in African American lit um, in, in English, but with that as my concentration. Uh, but, you, you know, I've been reading comics since I was a kid. And so, um, you know, I started publishing on, you know, race issues in Captain America, uh, you know, in the middle of grad school and did a, did a piece on Tim Truman's, uh, you know, 80s book Scout. So I, um, you know, early on around that time, I, I started buying up all the old 70s Shazam comics that I could find. I had never read them before. So I would go to the uh, uh, Hal Kinney's um, comic book conventions in East Hartford, Connecticut. I'm a, I'm a Connecticut native, and and there would just be boxes and boxes of old comics. Uh, and so I started reading all those old reprints of the C.C. Back and Otto Binder um, Marvel family stories from the 40s, which I had never read before because I say this in the book, I really, really hated the Captain Marvel live action show when I was a kid in the late 70s because I knew when that show came on, I don't know if you remember it, um, where he travels across the country with mentor in the, in the, um, the mobile home. And I always knew my Saturday morning was over when the live action shows would come on. So I'd have to go watch golf or like actually go outside, you know? So, um, I never had, a, I never had a childhood fondness for the character. Um, so it was only in the late nineties, early two thousands when I started reading the actual comics that I, I really began to enjoy them a lot, a lot uh, because of Beck's style, you know, he's got such a minimalist, seemingly simple kind of way to tell a story. So that really captivated me. Uh, and I had a friend at the time who who was also reading them along with me. And she said, well, it looks like Seth, you know, it looks like um, uh, some of those, you know, comics that, that he was doing, like, uh, it's a good life if you don't weaken. And I said, yeah, he does kind of draw like, like these um, drawn and quarterly um, you know, uh, indie art, arty comics people. Um, so over the years, I, I kept thinking about those comics, and um, I think in the late, you know, about two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, I, I started doing an outline of, for what I thought would be a book on mysticism in comics. 
And so I had different chapters on John Porcelino and Edie Fake and, and Will Eisner. And uh, I said, well, I have to do a superhero chapter. So I said, I'll, you know, I'll do something on uh, you know, Captain Marvel um, and back in Bender. And I kept looking at the outline and I thought that I would be the only one that would want to read that book. You know, it just didn't seem workable. And I said, well, what if I got rid of all these other pieces for now and then just wrote something on, on Captain Marvel and used that as my way of, of exploring some of the ideas on nostalgia and memory that I was interested in. Um, so around 2012, I really put the outline together and, and published, um, I think, what eventually became Chapter 3. I got, I'm looking at the, the, the table of contents for the book now. Because um, the hardcover came out in 2016, so the paperback just came out in February. So I have to remember what's actually in the book. Um, so yeah, chapter three, which is on Billy Batson in World War II, that was the first part of it that I wrote. Uh, and you know, published it in Studies in American Humor. And it was around that time that I contacted uh, Roy Thomas and uh, Paul Hamerlink, you know, the editors for uh, Alter Ego, the Comics History Magazine. And I knew that they would be the ones that would have a lot of archival information on uh, on the character and on the creators. And so what is what I did is I reached out to them and said, oh, do you need anybody, uh, you know, to write articles for you? Because I thought it would give me a way to kind of practice some ideas for the book. And they were very happy because the, the the fan base for for the original Captain Marvel is well, I'll put it this way. I'm, I'm the youngest of them and I'm, I'm going to be 46 this fall. So I'm on the younger side of the fan base for the original Captain Marvel or Shazam, as he's now called. Um, so I think that they were very excited to have somebody um, who was not uh, a, a subscriber for, you know, um, a retired person's magazine to be actually part of the, you know, part of the magazine. And so that's been, that, that was really helpful because that, that allowed me to really get in touch with other people were really helpful in the research for the book, including Trina Robbins, you know, the legendary cartoonist who was good friends with Cece Beck. So I got to interview her and she was very kind to share with me a lot of her correspondence with Beck um, from the 1980s. Uh, I got to talk to Harlan Ellison before he passed away because, you know, and I was trying to think of people that would have read these comics as children. Trina was one of the first people that came to mind. Uh, you know, she would have read them more in the late 40s. But I knew that Allison had read them when they came out in the late, uh, you know, in the early, early 40s. Uh, so I got in touch with him through his uh, his agent. And he was very happy to talk to me about Captain Marvel. Um, we did an interview later that was published in Alter Ego where he uh, he yelled at me a lot while we did that. You know, But if you're going to work with Harlan Ellison, you might as well get yelled at a couple of times. Uh, but he was very kind. So that's why there's a little bit of, of him in the book, because I wanted that child's perspective of what these comics were, why they were meaningful you know, in the in the 1940s. So, so that's really a long story about how it got started. It really was a process. And some of the ideas in it, particularly the material from um, writers like Marianne Hirsch and uh, Svetlana Boym were like long-standing ideas I'd had on, on, uh, on memory and ideas of nostalgia going back even into grad school. So I, I had notes on some of the, the theoretical stuff in this book back in the late 90s that I just wasn't able to use in my dissertation. So it really was a long-standing uh, uh, piece of work on this thing. So why don't we start? Because I think that often when we hear Captain Marvel, um, it, it, it is not the Captain, it is not Shazam. Um, so, and you start out and you do this, I, I appreciate how you sort of tie in some of your history and your relationship with this, but can you sort of 
and you start out in your introduction in a bit of it talking about that origins of Captain Marvel. Um, so I'm wondering if you can start there and just sort of talk a little bit about the Captain Marvel who you are looking at and who you are talking about. Oh, sure. I, I, I actually had a student a couple of weeks ago who came to my office to ask what I thought of the Captain Marvel movie, the Brie Larson film. And I'm like, oh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then he was asking me about the background on the character. I'm like, well, I, you know, I didn't know how to answer whatever the question was that he was asking. He's like, wait a minute. I thought you wrote a book about this. I'm like, well, it's a different character. I said, there is a footnote on that other named character in, in chapter five, footnote number one. Um, so I've, I've found myself having to explain that a lot. So the, so the book is on um, just the, the faucet Captain Marvel. So it's, it's the one that was created by Bill Parker and C.C. Beck in late 1939. The, you know, the Billy Batson who gets the magic word Shazam and is able to then turn into Captain Marvel. So that's the character who existed up until um, the lawsuit was settled with national periodical publications in 1953, at which point um, the copyrights were essentially lost or the trademark was lost for, the, for that actual name. So when DC revived the character, in the early 1970s, Marvel had already trademarked the name Captain Marvel for their their. I, I don't even want to say version of the character because they're not they're not really related, um, other than the name. Although the uh, you know the Roy Thomas Captain Marvel comics that he did with with Gil Kane in the late 60s into the early 70s, those have a lot of allusions and references to the Fawcett Captain Marvel, but they are two distinct characters. And actually, when I first started um, getting peer reviews back on the book, I did have a peer reviewer say, well, why isn't this about all the Captain Marvels? And I, I had to write a response saying, well, that would be a different book. That would be about the, the name as a trademark mm-hmm. and the property, which I touch on a little bit, you know, in, in, as you're kind of, as you mentioned in chapter one, I talk about the lawsuit uh, you know, that, that national mounted against Fawcett for copyright infringement in the forties. Um, but one of the arguments I made is that my particular interest was on that era of this character in the 1940s into the early fifties being one of the best selling figures, especially during the war years. And that would be my focus. It'd be fascinating to have a book that traced the property, but that would be a whole different uh, project than what I was, I was interested in. And that's not to say, I, you know, I don't enjoy the, you know, the Kelly Sue DeCona, Captain Marvel or the Peter David uh, Captain Marvel with Chris Cross from the early two thousands, but they're just different. Um, you know, they're just different characters. Um, so, uh, you know, I decided early on just to focus on, um, on the Fawcett era because it was so rich and it was really a period that uh, I found had not been covered at all in comic scholarship. It was relatively obscure, um, which seemed unusual to me given the impact that the character had and also the, uh, even the legacy later on. Uh, and I talk about this in chapter five of the book in terms of the fanzine culture of the 1960s, where a lot of those early fanzine writers, um, in ma- in you know uh, science fiction magazines like Zero, were writing about the Captain Marvel story. So so I make the argument at the end of the book that a lot of comic scholarship, as we now know it, is rooted in that fan culture um, of the '60s and can be directly traced back to people like Otto Binder, who himself had been writing for the science fiction fanzines in the 1930s and 40s. So there's a there's a lot of ways in which that original Fawcett Captain Marvel um, has has branches that kind of reach out into different aspects of comics culture as we know it today. Uh, and that's something that I really wanted to trace that I couldn't have done if I only focused on, you know, again, that idea of the property itself and how it, how it has changed over the years and changed hands over the years. 
Um, so that was a decision that I made early on just to focus on, on that particular era. Right. And so you sort of also introduce us to not only um, Captain Marvel, Shazam, whatever, however we want to re- reference him, but also to um, C.C. Beck as as sort of a writer. Can you and can you talk a little bit about that, how you approach him, what you found of interest um, with his life and um, bringing us to this character? Oh, sure. And that's that's the first chapter is devoted purely to him and his artwork uh, and his, his, his theories of art, because he, a lot like uh, Will Eisner, he was also a theorist, particularly, um, as I mentioned in that chapter, after he had a, a, an eye stroke. So his vision was, was um, limited uh, by the late 1970s. So he wasn't able to draw comics anymore. He would do paintings for fans, um, recreations of old covers. Um, but he devoted himself to writing and he devoted himself to sort of theorizing what from his perspective made the best kinds of comic art. So you have him writing for the Fawcett collector's newsletter and then later for the, uh, the comics journal. And then as he becomes closer friends with Trina, uh, with Trina Robbins, he develops that critical circle that I talk about in, uh, in chapter one, which is in the last few years of his life where he's sending out these articles, the, some of which he publishes in the comics journal where he's sort of testing out his theories of comic art. And so he's a, he's a, He's an interesting figure because of the way he um, he took what he had learned in running that shop for Fawcett because he and Pete Costanza, uh, like some of the other artists of the period, ran a shop that produced these comics, particularly at the height of the character's popularities in the 40s. And so he found himself in the role of a teacher. So he would have to show these young artists who had come out of uh, right out of art school how to draw the characters, how to pace um, how to, how to, uh, set up a page, how to compose it. And so he's, he's a really thoughtful figure who, unlike some of the other, uh, golden age artists, um, who, you know, are fantastic like Jack Kirby, but these are figures who are sort of younger and self-taught by the time he starts making comics, he's, you know, he studied at the Academy of Fine Arts in Chicago. Um, he studied back in, in, uh, Minneapolis. And so by the time he gets to New York, to work for Fawcett um, in the in the late 30s, early 40s, he's a professional and he carries himself that way. And that was the case with a lot of the other Fawcett freelancers. These were older um, writers and artists who were already established in their fields. And so he had a really interesting sort of critical perspective on how best to create comics. And he was not shy, as I mentioned in that chapter, about expressing his dislike for things that he thought were not um, up to the kind of standards that he had. So he, he called, he had what he called museum fatigue. So if he was looking at a comic, he takes the example of Barry Windsor Smith's Conan comics and he acknowledges that they're beautifully drawn, but he says, you know, after a couple of panels, I get tired. I don't want to look at the art for that long. I want the story. Uh, and this is why he, uh, later in life loved Wendy Peeney of ElfQuest. I mean, he wrote letters to ElfQuest telling, her how much he and his daughter and his granddaughter enjoyed that comic because he just admired her storytelling skills and her um and also the the stories themselves the kind of whimsical qualities of them so he was very encouraging to younger artists that he saw as as being in his sort of um tradition not only in the simplicity of their style but also in their love of fantasy and science fiction which of which he was also a, you know a huge fan um, so he's a really interesting figure also because he, uh, you know, his father was a Lutheran minister. So he has this kind of 
I noticed that as he gets later in his life, this almost mystical quality when he's writing about how comics function and how they relate to ideas of autobiography and memory. Uh, and he only just started touching on that, you know, when he passed away uh, in 1989. But you could see him trying to explore ideas that were largely not being studied and thought about in that way at that time. So I think he's sort of an underrated figure, not only as an artist, but also as a thinker about comics. Um, so that's what made him and that was another reason for me just to want to focus on this this material because it again it's so rich and it was so um largely unexplored other than by people like i said like roy thomas and uh, paul hammerlink who've who've really um you know studied this work for a long time so and you um and this is basically throughout the book but but you just mentioned that idea of sort of autobiography memory um how you talk about nostalgia. So I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about that, that sort of role of memory and autobiography and nostalgia and how that sort of influences um, some of what you discuss and argue in your book. Oh, sure. That, that comes in, in, in the second chapter uh, where I, I talk about Otto Binder, because one of the things I stumbled across when I really started diving deep into some of this material was the fact that Beck himself acknowledged and that uh, Binder uh, again, who was a, you know, he'd started as a professional science fiction writer and he's probably best known for being the, the person that, um, the title I robot came from his stories of Adam Link that, that Isaac Asimov's publisher borrowed in the 1950s, um, for some of his robot stories. Um, but, but all the talky tawny stories, the talking tiger that comes up in the late forties, early fifties in the, in the Captain Marvel stories, they're all based on Bender himself. And I mentioned in the book that, that Beck and Bender thought of those as these quasi-autobiographical narratives where um, not, nothing terrible or scary really happens. It's, you know, Mr. Tawny goes on a diet. Mr. Tawny wants to be famous. You know, Mr. Tawny gets a new suit. Uh, Mr. Tawny moves into a new house and has to figure out how to, how to uh, refurbish it. So they were these very uh, suburban post-war narratives they were all based on Binder's own sort of um, thoughts and and beliefs and and experiences as a, you know, as, as a as a young professional living in Inglewood, New Jersey, um, in in the post-war years. And so his his take on on how to create these autobiographical narratives in a form that really wasn't built for that. You know, these these popular narratives in which you're supposed to sort of hide your or subsume your identity under these characters um, really fascinated me. The more I found them incorporating elements of their own lives into these narratives, which the kids reading them wouldn't have noticed. And I, I had this discussion with, uh, with Ellison when I was interviewing him, you know, who like a lot of um, fans of his generation really are still enamored of the uh, monster society of evil, which is the worst of all the serials. There is no reason that things should be back in print. It's badly drawn. It's badly written. It is racist. It's it's it is not the best of that material. The Tawny stories are, and he disagreed with me, which is fine. But um, I, I, the the reason those Tawny stories are better um, in a lot of ways is also because they were more personal and they were more intimate. Uh, they were also a heck of a lot more progressive politically than than the imagery that was being used dur during World War II. Um, and so they're, they're much more fascinating. And so whenever I see all the debates online about, well, should the monster society be brought, brought back into print by DC? It shouldn't. It, there's no reason. You can get it online anyway and read it. 
Um, but the most fascinating work that Beck and Bender did was the post-war stuff, late, late 40s, early 50s, particularly those stories um, because of the autobiographical elements. And so that really allowed me to, to uh, tie in the autobiographies that I was seeing in some of that fanzine writing that I mentioned. So when, um, you know, Dick Lupoff first wrote about Captain Marvel for Zero uh, in the early 60s, he f- establishes his his affection for the character by introducing a memory of going to get that ice cream cone with his brother, you know, in, in 1941 in Florida. So the, so, you know, I make this point in the book that a lot of comic scholarship, if we trace it back to, you know, Dick Lupoff and and Patricia Lupoff and Don and Maggie Thompson, it comes out of this autobiographical impulse. Um, You know, that's kind of the ground zero for a lot of the work that comes later. And, And so I, I, uh, when I got to that part of the book, I, I felt that I was able to put a little more autobiographical material in, even from my uh, my own perspective, which um, comes in a little bit in, in chapter three uh, and, and at the end of the book. Although I wait sort of to the end, I, I, the way I tried to construct it is that I tried to build the trust of the reader. And then, you know, if you make it through chapter three and four, then I throw in more of the autobiography. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to I didn't want to foreground that. But luckily, uh, University Press in Mississippi and my editor, Craig Gill, uh, said to me, he's like, I trust you. He said, just, you know, if you want to do that later in the book, go right ahead. And, you know, I've had some reviews of it that, that like that, the, the turn that it sort of takes at the end, who, who uh, a couple of reviews that, that weren't expecting it and admired it. Others who were just baffled by it and couldn't understand, like, why an academic book would do that. And um, I remember doing another podcast a couple of years ago, particularly where the the host was really appalled that I even used first person at all in the book. And I'm, you know, and I I said, well, if you read any of my other writing, it's pretty much also there, you know, except in rare cases. So um, I just feel as a writer, I'm better if I'm, I'm working in that mode. Uh, the first draft of this book, which I totally rewrote, was mostly third person. It was terrible. Nobody would want to read it. I didn't want to reread it. So uh i i figured i'd take some license by the time i got to the third chapter of course you have to and, and throughout yeah and and we can talk more about that too and throughout though um there's a great deal of comic image there's a great deal of images from the comics and um, but i have to say that i think my favorites are in this chapter because i love like um the tiger dressed in a like a suit and you know like there i think there's where he's got like the the plaid suit on and and they're just wonderful, right? Like this 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 the juxtaposition. Yeah. Oh, you could tell they were having fun, right? I mean, that's that's what's so uh, so delightful. And I <laughs> I don't know if you've had a chance to see the Shazam movie yet, but there are multiple references built into Mr. Tawny, so it's awesome. Yes, no, yes, and we should talk because that you mentioned it was interesting because I was I was reading this um it, at the time you wrote it there was no decision to make a film and, and then the film has come out and so my son and I are big uh I'm a big DC fan more than Marvel but you know we do the whole comic superhero movie so um, of all of them that we've seen lately, this has been our favorite. We are very happy that it came out here in Norway because it was so fun. Uh, and there were great references throughout it. But I was, uh, you know, a little worried about, would it be okay? Would it be a little too kitschy? But I thought it was really well done. <laughs> I, 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 I'm glad to hear you say that because I really enjoyed it. And and we went, 
uh, my partner Allison and I were at the uh, uh, ICAF, International Comic Arts Forum in Davenport, the, the weekend that it came out. So we, no one else wanted to go with us. None of the other comic scholars wanted to come to the movie. because they're like, well, how's it going to be? You know, and, and, and we went, we loved it. We came back the next day and people were like, well, how was it? Very serious. I'm like, it was fantastic. And, and the fact that not only was it delightful in the way the old comics are, um, but the family, the way the family is depicted, uh, I thought was really moving and, and really powerful. And I also loved all of the references that they have built into Beck, um, like really obscure references. Uh, there's, there's a scene, I mean, I guess it's a spoiler, but I don't know at this point, it's going to be on Blu-ray and DVD in a month, I think, or two months, um, where they, it's later in the film. I don't know if you remember this, where they're talking to Billy about his family, his uh, biological family. And I don't remember which character says to him, well, we've done some research and we found out that your father, um, who's from Zimbrota, Minnesota, which is Beck's hometown, is now in Florida, you know, in, in prison or something, which is Beck's trajectory. He doesn't end up in prison, of course. But, you know, after the, uh, the lawsuits, he ends up in Florida and he feels sort of like he's in prison because all his friends, you know, are back up in, in New Jersey when he opens his little um, his little cocktail bar that down there. And so there's a lot of other references like that, that are built in that are very subtle, but um, somebody was clearly doing the research for that film in a very loving way. And, and that really impressed me. Um, uh, Cause you know, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the, like the Marvel movies. I mean, I like the, the Thor ones are fun that we saw um, Endgame this weekend and it was just really dull, you know, and kind of, oh, took the... I would say that was, yeah, no, we talked about how we're like, Oh, cause we were talking in here, Norway, they've come out. Well, some of them have come out a little later, but we were like the best one we've seen it. We saw Endgame as well, but we were like, Shazam, so much better. Yeah, it's so much better. It's just much more fun. And like, you know, it's got darker qualities. You know, the Savannah character has a more kind of Grant Morrison sort of uh, quality to him in terms of recent versions of the character. But they balance it so well. And and um, I don't know, when all the other kids get their powers, I was so excited because it, it is like the old... It, they're so cool. And they're such... The actors are all really good, the adult and the kid actors. But then they, they are like the old Uncle Marvels because it was always a family. I mean, it's and that's that's what drove the old comics in the best possible way. And to have such a diverse family, I just thought was um, it really was taking the best elements of the old comics and, and bringing it to a new a new uh, a new generation. So I'm actually writing a piece for Osvaldo Oyola's uh uh, website, um, the middle space is about the film, which I should have done by July, I hope, because I'm really excited to really get to write about it in a little bit more detail. Yeah, no, it was very because at this point, um, uh, I there's certain uh shows that there's certain films I've been really happy with, uh, but Marvel goes it goes back and forth. I, you know, but this, I was like, DC, finally, you did something, I was so happy. <laughs> Because I'm always like, come on, DC, stop doing like Batman, stop doing bad things with Batman. That used to be good. Or even I love the Wonder Woman, but I was just like, you're killing me here. And then this, I was like, oh, thank you. No, I same thing. I enjoyed the Wonder Woman. I went to see um, the first of the newer Superman films with um, oh, what's his the British actor, not not the Christopher Nolan Superman, but the um was it man of steel was the first of the more recent oh, more oh, recent yeah, ones yeah, yeah. and i my, my dad wanted to go I was visiting back home in connecticut so let's go see the superman movie i said this is not going to be like 
the Christopher Reeve one. I just want to warn you before we go in here, you know, and, and about a half an hour and he turned to me, he's like, he's like, this is terrible. What is this? I'm like, I told you this is not going to be like what we saw, you know, Superman one in 78 or 79, you know? Um, but that was, you know, and it was so disappointing because I don't know, I love those old Christopher Reeve films and, and, uh, they don't have to be exactly like that, but I don't know. I, I, I just found those, the justice league was really hard to sit through, you know? So mm-hmm. no, and this is, and it's, this sort of brings us to your chapter three, because your chapter three made me really think about that. The, this, this, and you talk about this sort of this golden age of comics, but this sort of world war two and how we think about um, these figures like Superman, right. And Batman and, and the difference. And so can you talk then a bit about, um, Billy Baston and World War II and sort of what you were talking in, in chapter three and what you were getting at with Captain Marvel as we go into the sort of the war. Oh, sure. Yeah, that that chapter, like, and that was the earliest, like I said, that's the earliest piece of the book that was published. It's it's heavily changed and edited in the in the book version. But uh, that was my way in because um, it's sort of a commonplace within comics fan and even scholarly circles that oh captain marvel outsold superman in the during the war years and he outsold captain america and wonder woman um but i didn't feel like anybody had actually explored that so why was that you know the, the only you know writing again that i i found on it was beck himself discussing it and then otto bender you know talking about the popularity with um, jim steranko if you if you've read the steranko history of comics there's interviews with bender and that um but beyond that there wasn't any critical engagement with why that would have been the case and so you know i I tried to sort of imagine like well what would it have been about this character that would have been so appealing um at that time and and one of the things i started to realize especially when i read the old comics was that the the captain marvel of those those days is except for some of the earliest issues he's really he's really innocent um he's really stupid a lot of the time billy's actually the clever character you know he's the one who who kind of gets things done and when he transforms himself into captain marvel things get particularly silly and ridiculous because that's this kind of eternal innocence um which was you know i i saw as being connected back with the way in which these younger soldiers were sort of um, imagined at that time, you know, these, these young men being sent off to fight. Um, and, and it's their very innocence and naivete, which will allow them to win out over the, you know, the, the, the access powers. And, um, I came across a, uh, a passage in one of Paul Fussell's, um, amazing books on, on his experiences during World War II, in which a returning Canadian soldier, uh, who'd been in heavy combat gets, gets off the ship uh, when he returns home and a nurse gives him a, a bag filled with uh, comic books and candy bars. And he, and he, he makes a comment in his journal, like, you know, I, I'm coming back and I, I, I've seen a lot of horrible devastation and trauma and, and they're still treating me like a child. So there was this idealized notion of what a soldier was um, that had devastating consequences on a lot of those returning um, folks after the war. And that, that was sort of my way into that. So there was this ideal of innocence that Billy represented, but there was also this underside, uh, that you read about in, um, uh, you know, in some of like Bill Malden's work about returning soldiers and how they were being reintegrated into society. And one of the things that really opened up that chapter for me was, um, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, the master, uh, 
you know, which I think may have been the last one of the last ones he did with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is about, um, you know, um, uh, I was going to say River Phoenix, but it's uh, it's <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, uh, you know, as a, as a, you know, shell shock soldier suffering with PTSD coming back from the war and trying to like find his way back into society and then coming across Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's like this uh, L. Ron Hubbard kind of character. And the opening sequences of that film, I, I saw that when I was working on the initial version of that chapter and just the, the atmosphere of it and the kind of unspoken trauma, which I think is uh, maybe a term that Samuel Delaney uses about that period, really inform my reading of that chapter, both both the positive qualities of how these characters function in that cultural setting, but also how they they can tend to mask a lot of the issues and the traumas that, that you know, again, remain unspoken after the war is over. So the way we remember the war in some ways is maybe filtered through these, these images, uh, which are very limited and limiting uh, by their very nature. So that's what I was trying to get, get to in that chapter. And some of it was also informed by the, the, uh, uh, the research I'd done on my grandfather, who was a World War II vet and had served in uh, North Africa uh, in the first phase of the, of the war in 40, 43. Um, and, uh, some of the issues that he faced when he returned. And, and again, that was separate research that I was doing, but I was trying to find the parallels between, you know, the real life of that period. And then this fantasy world that was being created by these, these writers and artists. And so that's how it sort of, uh, dovetails together at the very end of that chapter, which leads to chapter four, which deals with the race, you know, the racism and the, uh, uh stereotypical iconography that exists in a lot of those war era books. Right. Like, and I found that I appreciated actually, um, you talking about your grandfather and that connection. Um, because for me that really added this, yes, this sort of, um, not like the, a history, but a more personalized history to it. Like you sort of talk about, and then, yeah. So let's talk about, um, Steamboats America, your fourth chapter. And, um, Let's talk a bit about that because I, I like how you also address and, and handle and, and sort of approach that chapter. So share a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think of that as the kind of um, the, the chapters three and four, which originally were the end of the book. So it was actually going to end with the steamboat chapter, but, but there's a bleakness and uh, uh, I, I didn't think ending the book with, with the kind of darkness of that chapter would serve what the, um, the youth builders had done very well because their story of protesting against that imagery and going to the faucet editors uh, and saying, you know, this is how your readers are going to perceive uh, African-Americans is through this, this minstrel character of steamboat. Um, This is not, not what we as readers want. And so it's a, you know, it's, it's a case study of how, um, you know, readers, of that time period. And, and just to kind of back up, the youth builders were, were uh, basically an after school program. You know, in New York City it was established by uh, Sabra Holbrook, who was a, uh, she was a, a social worker um, who, you know, had moved to New York and had, had sort of started working within the school system and wanted to find ways to teach democracy, you know, to, to kids uh, of all kinds of backgrounds. And so, um, so one of the youth builders chapters uh, of that period, you know, they would be given these tasks. And so this group of kids at a, at a school in, in Harlem got together and, and were asked, well, what do you want to do? What kind of public service project do you want to put together? 
And they said, well, we want to, we want to get this character out of the book. We don't like Steamboat. You know, again, he was a sort of a holdover from the minstrel stage of the, of that period and uh, was a prominent character all the way up until he's removed in 1945. And so they went into Will Lieberson, who was um, one, you know, one of Fawcett's editors who himself later in life said that he, you know, as a sort of New York liberal progressive figure had issues with that character, even though they had an in-house policy that said there would be no stereotyped depictions of different races or different religions. And yet this is this character, which shows you how racism functions and the, and the kind of systemic way in which it works that no one seemed to pick up on this. Even Binder himself later was sort of defending the character when he himself was writing these allegorical stories for science fiction magazines about difference and about um, characters like Adam Link, a robot who's being uh, pushed out by society um, and so what was sort of fascinating about that was uncovering that history, not just of the protest against Steamboat by those kids, but also um, that that group of youth builders, which, you know, as someone that was also trained as a, as a high school teacher, just to kind of see how Sabra Holbrook's theories of education tie into this kind of mid-century attempt to um, bolster civic awareness uh, and, and um, civic engagement. And issues, you know, regarding race uh, and uh, and class, and so it was really fascinating to look at that, and then to try to make ties to what Alan Moore does with that kind of a character in Miracle Man, because I, I mentioned earlier that I didn't have any childhood nostalgia for uh, Captain Marvel or Becker Bender, but I read a lot of Alan Moore <laughs> in, it, when I probably shouldn't have been in middle school, so I was reading Miracle Man, and um, when I went back to reread those books and uh, those comics. You know, I looked at the Evelyn Cream character and said, well, this is kind of a Steamboat character because he in the in the Miracle Man series, he he realizes that he's a stereotype. He, he sort of goes starts going through all these stereo stereotypical images of um, black figures in the comics and, and starts reflecting on them. Um, even the, even as he's still kind of subsumed into them. And uh, I ended up writing to Alan Moore and asking him about the character, and he was kind enough to write back. And he said, I, I didn't know those original comics. You know, he really was looking more generally at how um, American comics in particular dealt with issues of race and how they dealt with issues of stereotypes. So clearly this was in the DNA of a lot of these comics going back to the 40s. So to try to make those parallels was also uh, fascinating while also trying to bring in, as I mentioned earlier, my training as an African-American is so to try to use um, you know, material from Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison. Um, the, the kind of work that someone like Keanu Whittard is doing, for example, uh, you know, her new book on uh, race in EC comics is one of the best studies, uh, you know, comics studies books of the last couple of years and really engages with a lot of those issues as well. Um, so I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, use all that material to really look critically at, um, you know, figures that are are sometimes dismissed. I mean, even in one of my footnotes for that chapter, I quote from a Brian Cronin article on, um, uh, I forget, one of, the, one of the comics online websites where you have a lot of defenders saying, well, at the time, no one noticed these characters. It was just the time period. And Cronin himself says, well, clearly, if there was a protest in 1944 and 45 against Steamboat, people knew these were racist, racist images. That's a myth, that there was nobody responding to this iconography at, in the period. And so that's why that kind of research uh, is important. The kind of research that Carol Tilley down at University of Illinois has been doing on 
on um, child readers and how they responded to, uh, to these comics is so vital. And there's more of that that's going to be coming out in the next few years so that we see what was actually happening and not these kind of myths of what we think was happening in these comics during these periods. Yeah, I for me that was one of the most interesting aspects because I too I um um I I work primarily with uh pre-service teachers and and so just thinking about some of those issues and some of the ways that with youth and youth empowerment is really important or thinking about sort of youth as activists and so I really appreciated that in that way that these young people are like we need to talk about how we are viewed and looked at. Um, and we see that especially in the 50s with this fear of the juvenile delinquent and um, this idea that young people are, right, like this This sort of predates that, but it was really interesting for me to sort of place that in there as well and, and how that sort of plays out during that, that sort of time period in that time frame. You should definitely take a look at Kiana's book because in, in one of her early chapters, she talks about the letters pages in the EC comics and how you've ha you'd have letters from white and black readers, young readers who were who were responding to the, the way in which, you know, again, these kind of progressive New York liberal writers were, were pushing back against the racism of that period. And then dealing with the consequences of it, that, yeah, the, there was the ad the accusations about the juvenile delinquency, but there was also... You know, there's also that discomfort that these were writers really grappling with issues of race that no one else wanted to touch as we get into the civil rights movement of, of you know, the middle and late 50s. And so she does a lot of great work with that in, in her new book. It's really, really, uh, really powerful piece of, uh, of scholarship. So and, and this might become a spoiler as well. But so what are your thoughts along this lines on the new um, Captain America? Oh, I'm all for it. If they're going to have Sam Wilson, be, be, I mean, I am like, I'm so on board for that. Now, my only disappointment with the Falcon character from the movies is that he doesn't have the costume of the comics because I'm a longstanding Falcon fan from the from before I could read because as a kid, I would have those book and record sets. And my favorite book and record set, you know, and I didn't I didn't start reading well until, I don't know, like first or second grade. I just like to look at all the pictures in my comics. And my favorite one was the one with Captain America and the Falcon. So for me, um, it seems like a logical narrative progression to have someone like Sam Wilson, who is so intertwined into Captain America's history and in the fictional world is so close to him to have him pick up that mantle. And that was the, probably the one of the few parts in Endgame where I was like, yes, OK, now we're now we're on to something good here, um, be, because, again, it, it's so. Um, I don't know. It, it's just inspiring. And I say this as I'm looking across my office here and I've got a Captain America Mego figure right next to my Falcon. And I'm totally ready to redress the Falcon in the Captain America's uh, outfit with the shield and everything else, because I just think it, um, the more, the more young readers that writers and artists can bring into the field now, the better, you know, cause for me, even as a kid, comics was about being as open and as accessible as possible. You know, I, I was one of those fans who would write to the comic buyer's guide and I'd get something bad from Catherine Ironwood from Eclipse Comics. She'd send me a box of comics or I'd get, you know, letters from my, uh, my pen pal in New York who'd send me all kinds of Mexican comics when I was doing projects like that. So to me, the world of comics should be as diverse and as open as possible because I always thought that that's what it was, <laughs> I guess, until the, uh, until the advent of the internet. I don't know. And then, the, or I guess I, 
yeah, as a, as a white dude, I guess I was just very sheltered. But the, I don't know the 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 kind of comics magazines that I read as a kid, like the Buyer's Guide, were always, I I don't know, in the way I read them about like, yeah, welcoming in different kinds of stories and different kinds of characters and celebrating the fact that Reggie Byers, who I'm, I'm writing about for my new book, was was an African American kid from Philadelphia who was drawing comics in a Japanese manga style that no one had ever seen before. And then that was exciting that it was like, it was like the best superhero team ever, you know, with all these different people from different backgrounds, which sounds very utopian and idealistic, but, but I, I feel like that's what comics is. And maybe that's my zine punk background also talking, but um, I, I, I really was excited to see that because I think having Sam Wilson as as Captain America, and I hope that's what's going to happen in the films. It just it serves as such an inspirational um, idea for so many kids that might otherwise not feel welcome. And I think that that's comics should be welcoming, and comic scholarship should be welcoming. That's that's so important. And I and one of the goals I always have in my own work is is to do that as much as possible to bring up name or voices from the past that might be forgotten or to like allude to other figures that I work with now who are in the field, just to try to get all those voices together. Cause that's where the best stuff happens, I think. So. Right. Yeah. No, I felt that I could have just gone to the last maybe 30 minutes of that film. There was a nod to the female um, superheroes sort of coming in there, like the female characters and that between those were like the two things I was like, okay, this was maybe worth seeing. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. That scene too, where they, where they were, uh, I forget the name of the character oh, from what kind of, yeah. Who, who are backing yes. up Captain Marvel. I'm like, yes. Okay. Now here we go. And this is, um, that's, I mean, I, I don't know why people don't see this or, or I shouldn't say some people don't see this, but one of the reasons that the X-Men, at least as my, I remember them in the early 80s, was so popular was because of the fact that the characters were diverse. The people creating it were not always as diverse as they could have been, but the, but the characters were, and that's what made the book so appealing. You had, you know, Kitty Pride, yes, who did read as a, as a Jewish kid from Chicago, you know, and Storm, who was this, you know, weather goddess. I mean, that's what made the book so interesting and what made books like New Mutants also interesting was, I think, the diversity of the characters. That's certainly what appealed to me when I was you know, an 11 or 12 year old reading those books for the first time. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, this, when you were talking, it made me think of the other um, comic adaptation that I've really appreciated is actually Miles Morales, uh, Spider-Man. Yes. Yep. And yep. even the film, that film, I appreciated. I, I like the, but I've also read the adaptation and I really appreciate that. And that sort of um, new take on Spider-Man. Yeah. So yeah. And what a great film too, right? I mean, speaking of Shazam, uh, I mean that and Shazam are, are my two favorite recent superhero films. I think I think they're just fantastic. I mean that, and I'm not an animated film person. I actually get dizzy at, at in a lot of animated films, like I, especially the newer digital ones where everything seems like it's in focus. Like I always have to adjust. It takes me about a half an hour, and I so I was very hesitant to go to the uh, Spider Verse just because I was worried I'd get motion sickness. Um, but I, I, I overcame that cause it was so much fun and I, I just, I loved it so much. So I, I, I overcame my kind of <laughs> inability to watch a lot of animated films. I was like, I'll just watch this on TV. And my friends were like, no, you have to see it in the theater. And I loved it. It was a lot of fun. 
Yes, yes, it was very much needed to be seen in the theater. Um, so you sort of end, you come to the end with this, um, looking at nostalgia, looking at sort of fanzines. And so can you talk a bit about um, talking about nostalgia, um, sort of defining that, and then what you started to see and people remembering um, Captain Marvel, especially in this fanzine culture? Yeah, that seemed like the logical end of the story because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the character comes back. You know, Beck works again for DC very briefly, but in the early 70s, he's, he comes back and he he works on stories written uh, mostly by uh, mostly by Denny O'Neill. Uh, there are a couple of other writers um, who, who work on it during that period, but he's not happy because he's, you know, Bender's retired. He's still grieving the loss of his daughter in a car accident and, and doesn't want to work on comics anymore. And so that that camaraderie has gone. Um, and so I talk about that a little bit in the last chapter, but I, I didn't want to go into like the later iterations, like the Jerry Ordway version of the character, which is, you know, well done or some of DC's other attempts to revitalize the figure because the logical end of that story of the Fawcett version <clears throat> I found was in the fanzines. You know, like I said, it was in Otto Binder's letters to Roy Thomas for the early, early versions of Alter Ego in the 60s and, and Beck writing for the uh, Fawcett Collector's newsletters. That seemed to be the actual end of the story. That was the end of both of their careers was as these um, lauded figures within fan circles. Um, and what became fascinating as I was tracing that was uh, All in Color for a Dime, the 1970 collection of essays that had been written for, um, you know, Richard and Pat Lupoff's uh, Zero fanzine. Uh, it's dedicated to Otto Binder. And, and that's another one of those early books uh, like, you know, Arthur Asa Berger's book on comics or, uh, you know, some of the 80s era books by uh, Tom Inge that, that to me seemed like an early starting point for a lot of later comic scholarship. Um, even in the way that it acknowledges its nostalgic qualities and and mentions the fact that, well, maybe this is not entirely scholarly in tone, but we are trying to sort of embrace and, and trace these histories. And so the logical end point for me seemed to be those memories, not to end with the revitalization of the character, you know, or the, the way he's brought back in Crisis on Infinite Earths or um, Kingdom Come maybe in the 1990s, but to see what these memories were and to see how it functioned in Harlan Ellison's life, how he, and I didn't ask him this directly, but in Paladin of the Lost Hour, which was one of the stories of his that was adapted for uh, the new Twilight Zone series in the 80s, it's a story about a, an older gentleman passing on his magic to this younger character. And I said, well, there's the Billy Batson story again. Um, you know, or Trina Robbins talking about how much reading the Mary Marvel comics as a kid inspired her own art style uh, as she became a professional artist. So I, I really tried to trace those ideas. And also I tried to find the links between comic book fanzines and then, you know, some of the zines that I would have grown up with uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. So the more punk rock zines, the mini comics. Uh, and so I, I include in there one of my favorite uh, contemporary zine makers, uh, Cindy Crabb, because a lot of her... Um, a lot of the way she just defines what zines are to her seemed to resonate, I thought, which is why I use her in that chapter with what figures like Trina were saying, or even Beck himself, the kind of communities that they were trying to build within these zine circles. So that impulse seemed very, very similar. Um, even though I, you know, I don't know, Cindy Crabb does draw some comics, but I, I don't think she's probably reading, you know, old Captain Marvel comics, but there just seemed to be a link there. 
which seemed to me to be the logical end of the story because so many of the zines um, or the, the even contemporary mini comics, you know, not only Cindy Crabb's work, but, uh, but John Porcelino's work in King Cat, for example, is so much about exploring memory and recovering things that, you know, even as the early studies of nostalgia say, may not have been things that actually happened, but they happened sort of in spirit or there's an emotional truth that you're trying to get at. And I feel like that's what figures like John Porcelino and Cindy Crabb are trying to do in their, in their work. So I was trying to bring it into that realm, which is also why I asked uh, uh, Kyler Roberts uh, to do the cover of the book, um, because the cover itself is, functions as a kind of forward. It's an entry point into the book itself. And her work is so autobiographical. And she also comes out of that mini comics self-publishing world that I wanted, I wanted to have that contemporary connection. I didn't want it just to be this exercise in uh, dredging up old stories about golden age comics. I wanted there to be some link to what's happening now. And so the cover of the book itself functions as a kind of, um, kind of bridge, almost like magical bridge between that old material and the new material that I, I talk about a little bit at the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. No, um, my dissertation was on zines and Cindy was one of my people and, um, my book is on riot girl zines. So <laughs> that by, I was like, oh yes, these connections make sense. <laughs> yeah. You're the only one who has said that to me. Thank you. Cause I, because for me that, I mean, in the way my brain works as someone that came up in comics, but then became a musician, you know, <laughs> in high school and college, I, I, it's, and you know, all my friends bands in college in the early nineties, I was in a bunch of shoegaze bands and all my friends were in Riot Girl bands. And that was just like a natural connection. And so I never saw any distinction between the comics and the zine world, you know? Um, so, 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 uh, so do you have a, ch- so do you write about crab in your dissertation then? Yeah, she, so in my dissertation, I wrote about five different um, zine writers and then um, I, I didn't turn the dissertation into a book because I was just done with it, but I then did a book just on riot girl zines um, and sort of feminist rhetoric. But it was interesting because often there is this sort of tension between personal zine writers and um, comic zines. And, but but I appreciate because Cindy does, she does a lot of, she, she does a lot of drawing. There's a lot of mix. Um, I wrote about one of her zines that was just all a comic zine. Uh, and, and so I think that there's more to it. You know, I think that there is a more of a connection than sometimes is and anybody gets credit for on either end. Um, but that idea that like the comics can't be personal, but I do see, especially with female, I mean, and I'm more focused on the female zine writers and the, uh, or identify people who identify as female who are writing zines and, and, and often their comic zines even are really personal comic zines. Um, and, and so I appreciated. Yeah, for me, the con- that connection made sense. I was like, "Oh yeah, this makes sense." <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because, well, see, there's there's very few of us that probably see that connection. I think, and I, you know, I, I talked to um, I talked to Anne Elizabeth Moore, speaking of zine makers, about some of this a few years ago, and she made a great point about how many of the comics fanzine makers are and were women. So there's this whole tradition going back to Maggie Thompson, who I mentioned a little earlier, and Pat Lupoff, who are so much part of that early zine making culture, but are not often recognized as such. I mean, Maggie Thompson edited the buyer's guide for, my God, like 20 years, 25 years, you know, having come out of zine culture. So 
um, her work was inevitably very personal, but it's often not seen that way because of the historical elements of what she was doing as a as an editor for like you know a comics newspaper. Um, and I think that's another world that, uh, and this is something Anne was saying, needs to be explored that 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 intersection of the personal with comics history, but particularly by, uh, as you said, female, female or female identified writers, because there's so much of that material that has not been touched at all, um, which I hope some young grad student decides to pick up on here at some point. <laughs> yes, but no, and I agree. And I was like that, you know, it makes sense. And there is this personal connection that I think is important, um, especially with, um, I mean, I think with any text, but comics, there there is a, a large nostalgia about this remembering, uh, looking at these pictures or reading this or seeing this and like this character, something about these, like uh, Wonder Woman, just, uh, I still, you know, I grew up with um, uh, Linda Carter and the Wonder Woman and, and even Hokey Batman. Um, but there was something about those characters <laughs> that um, that I was drawn like in, in even the I love Batman because of the draw. Right. Like the 80s, late 70s, early, you know, and then all through the 80s and 90s, like Batman and how they're drawn. And and, and I think that that connects to some of this personal in a way. Because do you, you make your own zines too, right? You, you're also a zine maker, right? Yes. 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 So. I'm always really curious to talk to other zine makers, like, because I, I think I told you over email a couple of weeks ago, I'm, one of the things I want to work on this summer after I, I get some of the edits done on the 80s book I'm working on in the next couple of weeks is the new zine that I'm working on, because I haven't done one in a couple of summers, one of my own. And um, I'm always curious to hear other people's practices like like where are they getting the ideas from is it from nostalgia is it from memory is it just from more contemporary things that they're seeing so where do you do you draw on your own memory and nostalgia in your work or is it more um i have friends that do more politically oriented zines so it's more about contemporary either pop culture i mean where do you get your stuff from no mine is mostly personal right the persine the nostalgia I'm planning on like doing a zine on being this sort of year in Norway and my Fulbright. Um, and so, yes, very much. And that's why I think I was like, oh, yes, this connection to um, Riot Girl, to Cindy, to zines in general sort of makes sense. When I talk about uh, sort of modern or contemporary zines and zine making, it always goes back to that 1930s, that fanzine culture um, and that fan culture. And, and so I think that that culture is important to sort of the contemporary um, zine making in general. And there's a lot of crossover between zine, zine writers and fandoms. And so I find that that's an important connection as well. Have you seen any of the work being done by uh, Rachel Miller from Ohio State? Because um, she's working on her, and she, hers, I think she, I don't know if she's just finished or she's about to finish her dissertation, but she's doing a lot of great work on those intersections between the some of the Riot Girl work that you that you that you've said you've done, and then the comics of the late eighties, early nineties. So she's really and she makes her own zines. So she's got she's also at that like I don't know Venn diagram of like scholarship, zine making, punk rock. You know, so um, I'm really curious to see what other work she and a lot of her colleagues are doing because at the Comic Study Society conference last summer, which I missed. I think they either made their own zine before they did their panel and roundtable on comics, but but they were making zines for people, which 
which yeah. was, I don't know, very exciting. My old, my old self was like, if only my 16 year old self had known one day this would happen, <laughs> you know? Yes. No, the, um, the pop culture association conference, the punk we have, there's a punk area and yes, we like to make zines <laughs> and put nice. a zine together at that. Yes. <laughs> So yes, you need, you need to come to more of the. You need to, that's awesome. You need to come to the comics conferences and like bring your zines with you. So there's more of us. <laughs> yes, make zines. It's important. Um, so you talked a bit about. We've been talking for a while, but um, so you talked a bit about sort of what you're doing um, next. But do you want to sort of give a shout out to anything about sort of what you're working on next and where you're, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I said, the big. Com- I think I mentioned this over email. The big comics project right now is the uh, edited collection I'm working on with my friend Brandon Costello at Louisiana State University. So a couple of years ago, right around the time I'd finished the Captain Marvel manuscript and it was all done and getting ready, going into production, he was finishing his Howard Chaikin book. And he said, oh, you know, what do you think about doing an edited collection on 80s um, indie comics? Like not, not the 80s comics in the U.S. we think of like Watchmen and uh, you know, the Dark Knight Returns and Mouse, but everything else that was that was around during then that nobody talks about or is talked about very little. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So, um, you know, right now we're at the stage where, you know, we've got 18 contributors and we're sending off the manuscript to Louisiana State University Press and we're, con- we're contracted with them. And so the manuscript's going off for the uh, outside peer review um, in the next couple of weeks. So we're, we're compiling that now and it's we're really excited about it. It's got a nice uh, cross range of scholars from different areas, from from the U.S., from Europe, uh, writing about all kinds of cool stuff like Neil the Horse and um, ElfQuest. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm writing about Reggie Byers and Brandon's writing about Southern Knights. So uh, Jose Alanis is writing about Miss Mystic, um, which he admits in the in the essay is one of the worst comics of the 80s, but in the best possible way, you know, so. Uh, the book kind of has that sensibility, like, 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 what can we, what can we recover from that era? And what stories can we tell that nobody has told or has, have not been told in a long time? Um, I was just finishing up a little piece on Colleen Durant, uh, Doran for the introduction yesterday, as we kind of edit that together on uh, a distant soil, speaking of people that came out of the zine fanzine world and became a professional. So, um, so we're really excited about that. We're hoping that'll be out next year sometime. You know, like I said, it's going in for peer review now. And hopefully we'll have all the final edits by the end of the year. Um, so that's my that's my big comics project right now. Like I said, I got a couple of other smaller things I'm working on, like the piece on the Shazam movie. Um, and, you know, like I said, hopefully doing a, a new zine of my own uh, this summer that I on some of my music, uh, my <laughs> my so-called career as a musician over the last 30 years, you know, and, and trying to remember some of those stories. Uh, of my days playing the the punk rock clubs back on the East Coast. So I'm, I'm slowly putting that together and have been for the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, and and also, like I said, I'm also a musician, so I've been doing a lot of new music. My partner, Allison Fields, and I have been doing more uh, cabaret-style shows, kind of themed shows where we write a bunch of new songs and also do covers uh, from songwriters of wherever where we are. So we did a gig in Los Angeles back in January where we had to do some more in Zivon, you know, uh, and just did a show in Indiana a couple of weeks ago where I felt required to do a John Mellencamp song. So we did some John Mellencamp. We did some, uh, uh, we, 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 which was awesome. You know, I, I, I did one of the deeper tracks from Scarecrow. If you remember Minutes to Memories, 
we did a cover of that, uh, complete with Allison playing, a, a playing, playing accordion on that. And, uh, and uh, did some Janet Jackson. We tried to do our sort of like Brian Eno version of uh, uh, <laughs> When I Think of You, which actually came out pretty good. Um, so we're doing some recording this summer. That's the kind of thing we're, we're focusing in now. We, we wrote a bunch of new songs for that Los Angeles gig. And so while Allison's working on her new zine uh, that, that she's finishing off her, her new collaborative zine, I'm trying to get some stuff ready to be recorded. And we do all that at home. We got our, all our digital recording equipment in the, in the front room here. So, um, so we're looking forward to, I've, I've never recorded an accordion before. So, and they're really loud. Like I didn't realize like, you know, like how loud they are. So I'm like, Oh wow, this is, this is different than my old punk rock days, you know? So that's what we got coming up on the horizon here. So it's been wonderful talking to you. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like, fun. yeah, Rebecca, it's been great. Uh, at well, let me know when you get a new zine. Then we got to trade, and I, I got to pick up a copy of your book. I looked, I'd seen that about the the Riot Girl because uh, uh, I got a couple other, got another article I've been working on for a while that touches on some zine stuff. That I, I'm going to need to take a look at your book because I think that'll be a big help as I finish this off. So yeah, there's not very many of us who write about zines, so um, right. <laughs> That's a small little uh, stick to, group. Yeah, we got to stick together. Yes, yes, yes. Well, here, yeah, but it's been great. So again, Brian Cremens, the author of Captain Marvel and the Art of Nostalgia. Thank you for talking with me for uh, New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me and, and uh, have a great summer. 